Good morning, everyone. It's, it's uh, good to see, at least at some capacity, most of you, and to be gathered uh, together this day. And if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll be reading verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Hear the word of God. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering together this morning and hearing your word preached. I ask that you would be here, Lord, and and assist me uh, to declare your word with accuracy, and may you bless your people, Lord, and enable them to understand the scriptures. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we gather together this morning, uh, many uh, churches uh, would gather on this day really for more than anything, for sentimental reasons. And many people would attend church today for sentimental reasons, because it's uh, Easter. And yet every Sunday should be a celebration of our Lord's resurrection. There's not one particular day in the year that we ought to personally highlight more than any other. God in his grace and goodness has given us one particular day that we ought to set apart and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, and that is Sunday. And that's the pattern that we actually have in the Bible. Every Sunday, believers gather together to celebrate the resurrection of their Lord. It wasn't an annual thing. It was a weekly thing. It was a weekly celebration. Yet, we ought to take advantage of these days in our calendars to remind ourselves of the blessedness that we receive from God in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to remind ourselves, what is it that we are talking about here? What is it that we're thinking about when we consider the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible tells us plainly that what we're focusing our minds upon, what we're trying to drive deep into our hearts is a promise that God made. God promised that he would send his son into the world. And this promise is recorded very early in the Bible. As right after the fall of man, God promises that he would send his son to crush the head of the serpent, but that his son's heel would be bruised. And then he, throughout history, continues to repeat this promise to his people. And particularly in the book of Psalms, God makes this promise. And Peter, after the resurrection, as he is preaching to the Jewish people, he reminds them that Christ would be raised up by God and that God would loose the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by death. Christ would not be left in torment. Neither would his sufferings 
lead to corruption. The Holy One would be raised up from the dead. So when we think about the resurrection, what we're thinking about, what we're setting our mind to think about is a promise of God, a very ancient promise. And we're not thinking about some myth. And many uh, liberal churches will gather today to celebrate the idea of resurrection. The idea of resurrection as a new beginning and turning over a new leaf, starting life over, is sort of like, like a second chance at a New Year's, resolution, new Year's resolution. But that is not what we're talking about when we're, we're, when we're discussing the resurrection. What we're, what we're talking about is a bodily resurrection. A phantom wasn't raised. A ghost or some gas didn't come out of the tomb. It was bodily. Christ had the very same body in which he suffered with all of the essential properties. He wasn't some weird uh, third thing, no. It was a resurrection body. And he speaks this way to his disciples in Luke chapter 24. Verse 39, he says to them, Behold, my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And as he shows them his hands and his feet, what do they see? They see the scars of his crucifixion. So what we're talking about this morning is a bodily resurrection from the dead. That is what we're setting our minds to think about and to meditate upon this morning. And this resurrection was not a resuscitation like Lazarus. You see, Lazarus was raised by Christ, but Lazarus was raised to die again. He would eventually die, either of old age or of martyrdom. Lazarus would die again, but Christ was raised from the dead, and he dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Christ. It wasn't just that Christ was healed. It wasn't that he needed a three, you know, three days in a tomb to recover from his crucifixion. Christ died. He was laid in the tomb. And those three days are intended by God to confirm to us this, that Christ actually died for us. Yet, God would not leave his people in anticipation for a very long time. After those three days, Christ rose again from the dead. And he is able to say to John in Revelation 1.18, I and he that lives, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. The same body that was placed in the tomb came forth glorified, imbued with the power of the life to come. And this Resurrection that we're talking about then is a divine act. God raised Christ from the dead the third day. God raised 
Christ from the dead the third day. And when we use this language, we're not speaking generically about a God, or a God was merciful to Jesus, or something like that, or a God will be, and therefore we apply it to ourselves and say something like, a God will be merciful to me and I will see another life. No. And what we're talking about here is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the language of God raising Christ from the dead is biblically charged language. This resurrection was a resurrection that involved each person of the Trinity, which is really a, a great mystery. So we read in the Bible that the Father raised the Son in Romans 6, 4, we read these words, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So the Father raised Christ up from the dead. Yet we also read this in Romans 1.4, that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the Spirit is involved in the resurrection of Christ. And then in John 10, 18, Jesus himself says this, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. So what we're talking about is a divine act, Father, Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, raising the physical body of Christ. And that resurrection is the glorification of the Son. You consider when John sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he is startled, he is taken back because he sees the glory of the Son. That resurrection is a resurrection a newness of life, the entrance into this age of the life to come, of eternal life, of filling Christ. Good Friday alone is not sufficient to save anyone. The death of the Son of God is vital to satisfy divine justice. This is unquestionable. But Christ must be raised from the dead for his work to be efficacious. If he died and remained in the tomb, what hope do we have? We of all people are to be pitied. Yet God raised Christ from the dead. And now there is no one to condemn us. Christ died and was raised. He is at the right hand of God. And now he intercedes for us. No one can condemn us. Christ died and was raised. His work on earth was completed. He had suffered for sin and became a curse as he hung on the tree. But he rose. He rose that his perfect life and sacrificial death might be vindicated. The resurrection is the amen of God upon the work of Christ. 
The resurrection then, so, so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a divine act where the body and soul of Christ were united and he was raised to newness of life and the age to come, eternal life, entered into this world with the resurrection of Christ. And it is the capstone, the completion of his work upon earth. And therefore, for us, for God's people, as we consider the resurrection, what we see is his victory, our valor, and God's vow. So all of that that I was all of this up to this point was just an introduction. And and now the now now is the sermon. Um, we need to, uh, because, so I did all that because we need to frame the resurrection rightly. We need, we need to have the proper understanding of what it is that we're talking about. And in the resurrection, then, we have Christ's victory. Christ's victory. By the resurrection, Jesus was victorious over sin and death. You see, when sin entered the world, when man chose to subject his own will to the will of the devil, disobedience entered into the world, the breaking of God's commandments, and that led to death. We read in the early passages in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we have this list, and it's supposed to, to grip us. It's, I believe it's in Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter 5. And we have the family of Adam, this, this genealogy of Adam. And we read these words repeatedly. Look at the end of verse 5. And he died. Look at the end of verse 8. And he died. The end of verse 11. And he died. The end of verse 14. And he died. The end of verse 17. And he died. The end of verse 20. And he died. The end of verse 24. God takes up Enoch. The end of verse 27. And he died. And so on and so forth. And throughout all of history, men continued to die because sin entered the world. Every person understands deep down inside, regardless of their religious tradition, regardless of whether they're an atheist or not, they understand that death is abnormal. There's something that is unnatural about it. And deep down inside, every person has a sense that there is more to life than living in this world. And when Christ entered the world, his mission was to destroy death and to destroy him who has the power of death. That torment that men and women feel, it it was one of the chief causes for the coming of the Son of God. That men might be freed and delivered from the power of that torment and from the power and dominion of the devil and from the rule and reign of sin. 
Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. This was the purpose for the coming of the Son of God. And uh, Paul the Apostle understood this to, with such, so, so much vigor that he can say things like this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he can say, O death, where is your sting? He understood that death no longer had any power. Uh, we live on this earth to die. And death is, is, is not a prison for us. Death is an entrance into a new existence. But if Christ returns, then we don't die. We are raised bodily to glory. The grave itself has no victory over us. It has no power. These things have now been subjected to the dominion of Christ, and they become the doorway into the eternal state. Christ has given us victory. Christ comes into the world to die and to be raised up again. The resurrection, then, is the victory of Christ. For this end, Christ died, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. He rules all. And this is the, 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 really the, the declaration of Christ in Matthew chapter 28, when he says to his disciples in verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. After he's raised from the dead, Christ now is seated with the Father with full authority. And he then becomes our valor, the resurrection. His, his work now becomes our valor, our boldness, our confidence. Everything that Christ did he did, uh, the, the older theologians used this language. They said that everything Christ did, he did as a public person. And, and what is meant by that is that he was a representative. And so, for example, uh, our system of government is a, a, is a presidential system. And we have a government head who is called the president. And when the president goes to war. Um, I understand the differences between the executive branches and the legislative branches, but let me just use a simple, you know, let's just simplify the illustration. If he declares war against another country, we are all at war with another country, right? Because he represents us. In a similar way, when God created man, God created us with a representative. And in the garden, that representative was Adam. And Adam failed. Therefore, Christ came into the world to be the last Adam. And in everything that he did, Christ became our representative. In his birth, where the Spirit hovered over Mary, kind of like the Spirit hovered in creation, and in Mary then was born this seed who was holy. 
He was the Holy One. Christ represented us because all of us, as David, are born in sin and iniquity. David tells this clearly in Psalm 51. Yet at his birth, Christ comes and he is born holy and pure. And he grows in favor and in stature with men and with God in a way that none of us can. And he grows in virtue and godliness and does works and perform works to the glory of God. And in everything he does, he, he shapes and fashions his own will as a man to the will of God and never disobeys. He lives a perfect life. He represented us in this way. But horror of horrors, that did not grant him entrance into heaven because divine justice demanded that those men and women that Christ represented must be punished. Therefore, what must that representative endure? The divine justice. That is the cross. Christ must suffer. He must suffer the shame of being convicted as a criminal. He must suffer the, the mocking and the beating. He must suffer the crucifixion, the cross where he bears the wrath of God. And in all of this, Jesus ses, sets his face as a flint towards Jerusalem. He does it willingly. Not only does he do it with his will, but he despises the shame that is associated with everything, the, the, with the mock trial, with the beating, with the cross, with, with the mocking while he's on the cross, all of those things. Jesus despises the shame associated with all of those things because he is acting as our representative. He comes to bear the wrath of God, to stand in our place in every aspect of his life. And he continues to do this even in his death and in his resurrection. In his resurrection, Christ represents us. That is why the rev we can say the resurrection is our valor. It is our confidence. Is it, our, it is our great strength in this life. Christ was acting as our representative. As Paul tells us in the verses I read when, when uh, we began the sermon in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but in 20 through, uh, 21 through 20, 22, Paul writes, For by man death came. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus was raised, of course, for himself, so that he might be vindicated, so that his work might be vindicated, so that... Uh, all of heaven and all of earth so that the principalities and powers, so that the devil himself might be faced with the fact that God accomplished all of his purposes in Christ so that Christ might be honored and he might be glorified in his resurrection. But because he is our representative, that resurrection 
becomes our valor and our confidence and our joy because his resurrection guarantees ours. His resurrection was as much for us as it was for himself. In Ephesians 1, verses 20 and following, we read these words that God raised Christ from the dead, and he is now the head of the body. He's our representative. He leads us. He leads us into victory. Our entire entire life in this world will be full of tribulations, yet Christ is our head to guide us through that difficulty. One who has passed through death, he has gone through the greatest tribulation. He himself bore God's wrath for us. And now he navigates through that tribulation by his scripture and by the spirit, the people he represents. As our representative, he receives from us as we also share in what he received. What does Christ receive from us? Well, on the cross, he received our sin so that we might be punished in him. On the cross, we received the wrath of God in Christ. In his resurrection, we receive all of his righteousness. So Paul says this, that Christ was delivered for our offenses. He was a just man. There was no reason for Christ to die. And he was raised again for our justification. We can have confidence that we are justified, that we have a right standing with God because Christ was raised from the dead. More than a standing As Christ was imbued with the power of the life to come, so are we who believe in him now. It's not that we have been physically resurrected, but we have been spiritually resurrected if we are his people. Regeneration is an imparting by the Spirit, a a part of that life of the age to come. So in Ephesians, Paul speaks this way. You have been quickened. You have been given life who were dead in trespasses and sins. Even when we were dead in sins, God has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. We were in Colossians 2.12, he says we were buried in baptism when we are are baptized and uh, we're lowered into the water. That represents our death, our dying, yet our dying in Christ. And then when we're raised out of the water, you were raised with him through faith by the work of God who has raised Christ from the dead. And our rising out of the water represents Christ's resurrection from the grave. The dominion and the power of death, the bonds of death could not hold him because of his perfect life. And that's what baptism represents. And now in, in a internal way, In our very spirit and soul, resurrection has been imparted, and we share in that life to come. 
we can with great confidence then face anything that happens in this world because our hope is guaranteed. We have the greatest confidence. And therefore, the resurrection is not only Christ's victory and our valor, but it is also God's vow. It's God's promise. It's God's promise that not only will he support us against all of our enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, not only will he support us in this life against all of those things, but we are guaranteed the resurrection of the dead. We will one day be raised to newness of life. Our time on this, in this world, in these fallen bodies, whether, whether we're able to live like Abraham 125 years will be just a blip in our existence. When we receive our glorified bodies, we will enter into a world of joy and gladness that we cannot even imagine. We get glimpses of it in the book of Revelation in the form of, of in, in symbolic form. Yet what Christ has done for us becomes the greatest promise of all. In 1 Corinthians 15, and I know I'm flying through these verses because I have so many of them. And if you want the notes, I'll give them to you. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 27, Paul says this, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is manifested that he is accepted, God the Father, of course, which did put all things under him. You see, everything now has been put under the subjection of Christ, under the rule and reign of the God-man, even death. What, the, what does that mean for us? That death is a servant. Death is our servant now. We have nothing to fear in this world. So, so as ev everybody is in a panic uh, because of the coronavirus. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. Look at where we're meeting, right? We're, we're attempting to be responsible, right? We're not being irresponsible. But we ought to have no fear of death. Death has now been made a servant of Christ, his subject. In what way? But, if Christ does not return and we die, death serves to eliminate, to bury, to put to death this body of flesh and to usher us into the very presence of God. Death is a servant now. All these things have been subjected to Christ. Christ has been given all things. Every enemy in this world that we could think of, God supports us by the promise of the resurrection. By raising Christ from the dead, God vows, since he is our representative and he was victorious over the grave, that we will receive the same. God assures us 
of our own resurrection from the dead on the last day. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 that I read, we hear these words. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that sleep. He's the first portion. Christ is the very first part, which guarantees the rest of the harvest, which is us. And it's not just our souls, but our body in a new heavens and in a new earth. And Paul adds this in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. For if we believe that Christ Jesus died and rose again, even so we also who sleep in Christ, will be, will, God will bring us forth in him. Now, this is the great confidence of the Christian. This is why Christianity, true Christianity, not liberal, unbelieving Christianity that, des- that denies the resurrection, that uh, ma- makes it a myth, but true Christianity has had such a, an influence and power in this world. And when God's people begin to reject these precious promises, or they put them on the back burner, or they allow things in this world to suppress the truth of these promises, the church suffers. Individuals suffer, suffer and whole denominations, and then the, world, the church in this world globally suffers. Because these things that are given to be our very hope and joy do not become the center of our life. We take great pains in protecting ourselves. And even now, more than ever, right? So uh, there's a fear of death, right? We might die. We might contract this disease, and, and we might die, or we might cause someone whom we love to become ill. So we take great pains to, to wash our hands and to cover our face, faces and uh, to, to wipe our shoes before we come in the house and maybe change all of our clothes and to clean our groceries or whatever it is that we're doing. We take great pains to do all of these things. But we suffer very little in trying to grow in our knowledge of these precious promises. We don't allow these things to genuinely capture our minds and become the the narrative in which we live. We allow the news, what's going on in social media, this culture, our world, we allow that to be the narrative that we're placed in. Instead of allowing the scriptures to inform every aspect of our life and how we conduct ourselves in this world. It's a very shameful thing when Christians lose this great vow, this great promise of God. You know, um, many of us now are, are realizing that uh, fellowship, time together with other Christians, is sort of important because we've not had it in a long time. And what I would encourage you to do, those of you that are here this morning, is uh, to remember that the, the, the joy, the gladness, uh, maybe 
it was a faint anticipation of the Lord's Day. It's just a taste of the life to come. It's just a little sample of it. And when we confine a cele- celebrating the resurrection to one day a year, think of how you starve yourself. If you decided to have one meal a week, right? And even if it was a good meal, you would injure yourself greatly. Yet, we do this with the resurrection. We do this with the fellowship of God's people. What I pray is that this time apart would cause us to grow in our desire to be together more and more. Listen to what Paul writes, and we'll finish here. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. And I'm going to read a large section of Romans 8. Romans 8, 12, Paul says this. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, our representative, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. One brief comment and note here. I'm going to continue reading. But one, you see the representative nature of Christ? As he suffered, we are to suffer in this world. Why? That we might enter into glory with him. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us excuse me, in us, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. What Paul is saying here is that this world, the creation, longs for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation longs and waits for the day when Christ returns and the promise of God is confirmed in us when we are given resurrection bodies. Uh, we, we, have a, uh, we have a great number of men and women who enjoy nature, being outside the creation. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation itself is under the curse. God cursed the world when Adam sinned. And that's why there is death and corruption in this world. And it was God himself. The devil could not do it because the devil would not subject creation in hope. The longing, the anticipation of this world. So so when springtime comes around and flowers begin to bud... The trees begin to, 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 to uh, put out their leaves and, and, and their beauty, their glory is, is being revealed. 
but only till fall. It's hampered the glory. It, 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 it's not a glory that continues to surge, that fills the earth. Why? Because God wants us to remember the curse. And he wants us to anticipate and to long for, for something. Look at verse 21. Because the creation itself, itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This, this world itself with all of its uh, viruses and bacterias and diseases and death and decay, will be freed. The, the bondage and the curse of death will be uh, lifted. It will be released from this planet when we are released from the curse of our bodies or raised from the grave when Christ comes. This is the hope and the expectation that the people of God ought to live in. We ought to live in Romans chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So brothers and sisters, let's praise God for putting Easter on the calendar. But let us remember that every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of the Son of God. And may we with Paul eagerly wait with perseverance for that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. And we long and wait for the day that we can gather together formally and embrace one another but more than that, Lord, I pray that this time apart would cause us to anticipate, to grow in eager expectation for the resurrection of the just. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.